This podcast is not here for those people that are trying to stay out of last place. Because those consequences don't exist for the people that are listening to this podcast. These are the people that always end up in the playoffs but can't seem to get over that hump. Or the ones who just want to dominate year after year just to show everybody else they're the champions. Guys, this is a fantasy football intervention. And we're about to intervene with your fantasy football life. Save you 15% or more on car insurance. 44, ladies, that's me! Woo! Going to get some cold cuts today. That's what I'm talking about, man. There are certain episodes that I get really, really excited to do. There are other ones that kind of bore me, but the ones that I get excited to do, I don't even want to finish doing the research. I just want to talk and tell everybody all about the cool new stuff I found out, all the cool analytics, all the cool facts and stats. So much fun! Right? Right? To be able to come out and tell people that. And then there are other episodes where it starts out kind of slow. I don't really know where it's going. I try and find a direction. I come up with facts and stats that really don't even exist, but I'm trying to produce something. And that's kind of how this episode started out, was me just sitting there trying to dive in and figure out what direction I wanted to take this episode. I really don't have a schedule at this point in time, or at least this point in time in the football season, or lack thereof. So I have to figure out ways to not only entertain myself, but to keep you guys entertained. And a lot of these, a lot of these different podcasts that you guys listen to, different companies, they just go over the generic stuff, right? They're top 12 guys for quarterback, and the next episode's the top 12 guys for the running back position, and the wide receiver position, and the tight end, and sometimes the defenses, and you know, who's a sleeper, who's a boomer bust candidate? Me? That's not how I want to operate. I want to give you guys different angles, different views, different ways to look at different players and decide, hey, I want this guy on my fantasy team or I don't want this guy on my fantasy team once the time comes. Once you guys have to click enter draft, I want to make sure that you guys have every viewpoint of every player possible, whether it's deep players or whether it's the top end ones. And I have to make it original. And I have to get motivated. I have to get motivated to do these episodes. And it's not hard because I love doing it. But sometimes it just doesn't click for me. It just doesn't click. Well, I was having one of those days, right? When I started my research back a couple days ago, I was having one of those days where I just didn't know which direction I was going to take this episode. And I started writing a bunch of stuff down, typing a bunch of stuff up, trying to figure out where I wanted to go with this episode. And then I came across an article. It was by Connor Orr. It was on January 17th, 2020. And he goes in, he breaks down different offenses and how offenses from the past have kind of filtered their way out of the NFL because of rule changes and because of gameplay and because of coaching styles. Meanwhile, there has been one offense that has made a, I guess, a dent into the NFL in different eras and different time periods. And it all starts out, baby, with Icky Woods, man. Get my cold cuts today. Love that commercial. 
Absolutely love that commercial. That guy was great, man. In 1988, he actually finished with 1,066 rushing yards. It was ninth in the NFL and first in touchdowns that year with 15. The crazy part was that he did that in 185 less attempts. 185 less than what Eric Dickerson did. It's crazy. Don't forget Eric Dickerson was the rushing champ that year. Woods led the league in yards per rush that year. He did that under a scheme in which he would sprint about five yards wider than the widest offensive lineman, find that crease, and cut up field. Traditionally, teams have sat back and ran the ball up the middle. Because why would you go around? You just need to beat your blocker, right? The guy needs to beat the guy that he's blocking and just push the line forward and get as many yards as possible. It's not what this offense that they were running did. See, Iggy Woods was a big physical back, but he had burst and he had speed. He had size as well. So by taking the ball, and as soon as he got it sprinting to outside the widest offensive lineman by about five yards, it essentially cut the field in half. Now, the defensive linemen that were pursuing from behind wouldn't be able to catch him. It would cut off half the linebackers, would cut off one cornerback, one of the safeties. And then the zone blocking scheme from having big athletic guys able to shift and push their guys into certain areas, allowing Icky Woods to find that seam, worked phenomenally for that system. It was absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And it's not just a zone blocking system. No, 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 it's not. It's the wide or outside zone blocking scheme. Now, don't get me wrong. I know it exists throughout multiple different offenses. Hell, it's part of the Rams today. It's part of the 49ers today. Multiple, multiple different offenses have this set scheme. However, the Cincinnati Bengals back in 1998 operated their entire offense off of this outside zone blocking base run scheme. It's tough to run it off of. It's tough. But today, we look at it, and the Titans ran the same exact system. Derrick Henry, here's the ball. Get as fast as you can to the outside of Conklin. Get as fast as you can to the outside of Lewin. Just get to the outside as fast as you possibly can. Find that crease and get the fuck up field. Hell, worst case scenario, as long as it is run properly. As long as it's run properly, the offensive linemen take care of their blocking assignments. Right, The, the running back actually gets up field without having to look behind him. As long as it is run properly, the worst thing that can happen is you meet a defender at the line, and because of your forward momentum that you've created by sprinting to this spot, you're going to fall forward and gain a couple yards. That's why the Titans didn't get stuffed a whole lot this past year, was because they couldn't get stuffed, because Derrick Henry had the momentum. He didn't get tackled for a loss very often. Hell, you end up throwing in a bootleg? Additional to this, oh my God. It pulls potential blitzing linebackers. And boom, you have one of the most frustrating and diabolical offenses to stop. Hands down. Now, not every running back can do this. 
I mean, bringing up the Titans, we just saw Deion Lewis struggle with it. That's why teams don't run this as their entire offense is because you need the perfect player and you need the perfect line. When we look back, we saw Gibbs bring it over to the Denver Broncos and Kyle Shanahan implemented this offense. Terrell Davis became a superstar, absolute superstar. Then we saw Gibbs bring it over to the, to the Atlanta Falcons. Boom, work done, has a phenomenal season. Then we saw Kyle Shanahan implement it from time to time with the 49ers. But it is increasingly, increasingly becoming a more and more difficult offense to implement. You can't run it as your primary offense constantly unless you have the perfect setup. Why, do you ask? Why? Well, let me tell you. Not only do you have to have the right running back, you have to have the right offensive lineman, and you have to understand how to properly operate it. You can't just go to a certain spot and block. You can't. The linemen that are on the side that they are attacking have to come out of their stance extremely quickly, use their leverage and power to drive one of the guys that they're asking to block back towards the pylons, creating wide holes, obviously, for your running back to cut up into. Once he sees that opening, boom, he's gone. But you're talking about driving a 300-pound man 10 yards in a direction that they don't want to go, right? Then you're asking the weak side to properly cut block. That's right, cut block. Their guy allowing the running back to take an angle that they want to take and be able to accelerate off the bat without worrying about being caught from behind. This style of blocking doesn't exist that much anymore in the NFL. They can't do it. The new CBA agreements that says they can't initiate that style of practice in the offseason because of injury risk? Practice. Who needs practice? They need practice. It's all about timing. It's all about momentum. And if you can't sit there and teach a guy how to properly do it, you're going to screw up a lot of people's lives. You're going to screw up a lot of people's lives. First off, you're going to put the offensive lineman at risk. Injury risk, for sure. If he does not properly do it, he can mess up his back, he can mess up his neck, he can mess up his head, he can mess up his legs, he can mess up everything, essentially. And then if you end up hurting the defensive end, because maybe you go after his knees, and he's planted, you could ruin a guy's career. And when it comes to, the, to not doing it properly, and allowing a defender to get past you, oh my god, you are signing the quarterback's death certificate. If he goes to a play-action boot, bootleg and the defender does not get properly blocked and he sees that it's play-action fake, when that quarterback comes around to accelerate and to look up field for a wide receiver, you are talking about a mad truck. A mad truck running over a scooter. Bow! He's dead. Lights are out. His career's over. And then you talk about if it's a run, there's no way that the running back is going to be able to get out of the backfield in time because he's taking an angle. And if that defensive end is fast enough, he's going to cut that angle right off. You're going to get tackled in the backfield. The biggest thing about this offense is the running back has to keep his eyes upfield. He has to be constantly scanning for a crease so that he can cut and go. It's one cut and go. And if he's focused on keeping his eyes up the field, then he's going to end up getting caught from behind if that defense thing gets passed. Then what's going to happen? Then what's going to happen? 
If it happens multiple times, all of a sudden that running back is going to be constantly, constantly looking behind him. He's not going to be searching for that crease. He's not going to hit that right hole. It's literally going to be a disaster, which is what we saw in 2018 throughout the whole beginning of the season. Derrick Henry just did not trust that system. You could tell. You could tell. Go watch the film from 2018 prior to Henry's breakout. You will literally see him looking over his shoulder to make sure defenders aren't there to catch him from behind, which was allowing him or not allowing him to find the creases. Right? If the quarterback gets hit a few times, the quarterback gets hit a few times, he's not going to accelerate out of his bootleg because he's afraid to get hit. He's going to stutter. You were talking about the offense falling apart if people don't do this the right way. It also has a big piece to do with the fact that the Tennessee Titans in 2018 didn't have the best offensive line, right? I mean, towards the, the tail end of 2018, when Henry's breakout happened, he faced the Giants, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Washington Redskins. Yeah, terrible defensive lines at the time. The Redskins couldn't stay healthy. The Giants didn't have an offensive line, and Jacksonville's was completely falling apart. So that allowed Derrick Henry to start to gain faith in the system right? Then they go out and they draft Nate Davis. They add Roger Saffold and voila, always wanted to say that, voila, right? They have a veteran leadership to enroll the proper offensive system and crush teams moving forward. Now with Conklin, with Conklin gone, gone, it does make me a little bit nervous that they can't duplicate this, but they did re-sign they resigned Kelly, who should take over that spot. He already knows the system. Then they drafted Isaiah Wilson, who, if developed correctly, man, he could be ungodly for that system. Big, powerful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can only imagine how wet Vrabel is every time he thinks about Wilson blocking for Henry on that right-hand side. Oh, yeah. Now, you know that I know that I have to be bringing up a point, right? And this is to go through all of that, just to say how Henry's going to put up similar numbers, right? Or how Darrington Evans could end up being a great handcuff. Come on. I know that you know that I know something even more in depth than what y'all want to know. Did I say that right? I think I nailed it. I think I nailed that. Should I tell him? Should I tell him what I know? Hmm. Should I tell them? Who could it be about? Could it be about Corey Davis? Johnny Smith? Nah, I just covered them last episode. If you want to hear about them, go listen to last episode. So what could it be? God, I love holding this information from you guys. You know, because I talked about how excited I am to go on say it. All right, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. There's a team, a team out there that's building a wide outside zone running scheme. They're building it right now. A lot of people hated on them for what they did in the draft. And honestly, it's just because they don't get to talk about the wide receivers that now exist in fantasy on this team. Right? How juicy that wide receiver or player could have been in that offense, right? Did y'all guess what team it is yet? Did you get what team? They drafted power guards and a power center along with a tight end this year. They signed Ricky Wagner. All right, if you didn't get it yet, I'm going to have to tell you. I was going to tell you. The Green Bay Packers, baby. The Green Bay Packers. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Go to the next gen stats and look at it. Go look at it. Go look at the rushing charts. 
It's crazy. You could do that, or you could just look at the condensed version that I'm about to put up on Patreon, one or the other. Patreon.com slash Fantasy Intervention, where I'll just post everything for you so you don't have to go searching for it. It's only two bucks a month. Patreon.com slash Fantasy Intervention. Go join Patreon. You'll get all the information you could ever want from me on there. Stuff that I just do in depth that you guys don't even get to hear about on the podcast. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm going to put a condensed version. Condensed version of Aaron Jones and Derrick Henry and their rushing trees. And I'll, I'll put another one. I'll put up like Joe Mixon so you can see how it varies from system to system. Yeah, patreon.com slash fantasy intervention. I'll do it for you guys. It'll be up there soon. But they're going to run the same exact offense in Green Bay that the Tennessee Titans ran. And you could say, well, duh, I mean, why wouldn't they? It's, he's the coach. He's coming from uh, LaFleur. Uh, he's coming from Tennessee, right? right? It wasn't planned to be that way. Don't forget, LaFleur has come from passing offenses that have been successful. But he saw what Vrabel did and what he did and what offense he designed while he was in Tennessee. And I think he fell in love with it. I really think that he did. And looking back at it, when Aaron Jones had good games, he was doing what that offense is getting built currently to do and what the Tennessee Titans did while he was the offense coordinator there. When he had bad games, all you can see is him taking more cutbacks and spending more time behind the offensive line, rounding his, his rushing chart, his route, his, the way he's running, he's rounding it, he's going too far to the outside, or he's going, cutting back forth and going in the middle. Anyways, he wasn't running the proper proper system that Matt LaFleur wants his offense to run. Matt LaFleur wants his offense to run a certain way, and Aaron Jones is not consistently doing that. He's not. That's why they're going to let him walk in 2021. I guarantee it. There's a 75% chance that it's going to be the A.J. Dillon and Dexter Williams show, baby. Yeah, baby. Yes. Dexter Williams, A.J. Dillon. Listen, they didn't bring and AJ to be a goal line back. That's not just what they're going to use him for. And I'm so sick and tired of people just saying, oh, he's just going to be a goal line back. He's not. He's not. Go look at Matt LaFleur's career. Back with the Houston Texans. Right? He was just a QB coach. But all he saw was Slayton getting 270 carries. No goal line back. In 2009 to 2011, his running backs were injury riddled. But yet they still use primary guys whenever that one person was healthy. You remember when Tim Hightower was relevant? What about Roy Hallou? In 2012, he finally saw a healthy running back, and McVeigh gave him 335 touches. Yeah, that's right, Alfred Morris. Devonta Freeman in Atlanta. This is all that LaFleur has been exposed to. While he's been the offensive what, quarterback coach or consultant or offensive assistant, even if he's not calling the plays, this is all he's seen. He hasn't seen a goal line back yet. He doesn't know those exist. And then he finally gets a shot as an offense coordinator. And what does he do? Todd Gurley and Derrick Henry, baby. They weren't goal line backs. He eventually used Derrick Henry as the primary back. He used Todd Gurley as the primary back. He might say 
that he needs more running backs when he does his press conferences, but he's just trying to be politically correct so he doesn't fuck up the locker room. And so that he doesn't create a rift between himself and Aaron Jones. And so that this offense still continues to flow. He wants, he wants the guy that wants to run his system. And that's going to be A.J. Dillon, baby. It's going to be A.J. It's going to be A.J. It's going to be A.J. I don't care if he's not going to catch passes. I don't care because he's going to get a minimum of 325 carries a year. 325. Plus, you're getting them in the late second, early third round of rookie drafts, maybe even later. Hell, I'm not taking him in the late first or the early second, but this is where he's going. You're telling me that this player has draft capital. Check. Superior athletic ability. Check. No one in front of him in the depth chart in one year. Check. College production. Check. Dominator rating. Check. What else do I have to check off of your list? Pass catching? Get out. Get out now. Listen, I always want pass catching in my repertoire. But we don't know that he's not going to get used in the screen lane. We don't know that. He didn't have the opportunity because he was too busy busting off long runs at Boston College. I want you to listen carefully. I don't care that his feet didn't look nimble in the Staley drill. Or that he didn't test in the agility drills. I don't care. That's not what this offense is asking him to do. It's get the ball, accelerate as fast as you can in a straight line diagonally, find a hole, and hit it. Once you get through that hole, you can run over guys in the secondary. He ran a 4-5-3 at 247 pounds. He has 97th percentile burst score at 247 pounds. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This kid, I'm going to take it out a notch. Sorry, I was getting a little bit built up. This kid could be better than Derrick Henry when it comes to dynasty football because he's going to be effective at an earlier phase in his career. He's going to be with a coach that not only reached for him, but also made a statement. He made a statement by saying, I don't give a flying bleep about Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers who? Who? Most coaches will live or die by the quarterbacks that they draft. The floor is going to live or die with his running back because he went all in on the style of offense and he has to make it work. He has to. He set himself up for success in the future with Jordan Love by designing this offense around the running game and not putting all the pressure on Jordan Love's shoulders. Even when he does get a chance to start, it'll still be a run-centric offense and it's going to be successful. Listen, I'm not sitting here and saying that it's going to affect Aaron Jones this year or that he's going to be a superstar this year. What I am saying is that if you take A.J. Dillon after your first couple picks in the second round, right after those picks go by, and you, you just select A.J. Dillon at some point in the mid to late second round, third round, whenever you get him, you're going to look back at that draft pick, and there's going to be a big W right next to that draft pick. Right next to it. It's a big win. Now, prior to me peeping the schedule for this upcoming year, I was actually going to buy Aaron Jones. 
I really was. I mean, young, healthy, lead back on a team that went deep into the playoffs. They have a great defense and a coach that wants to run. <laughs> Don't forget Aaron Jones is now on a contract year. It sounds amazing. I want every piece of that player. But I had to pump the brakes. I had to pump the brakes before I get a little bit too excited. And obviously me getting too excited. Woo! Woo! Yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Taking a deep breath and looking back. At the earlier part of this podcast, I talked about them drafting a center, two guards, tight end, all help in the running game. But they typically do need a little bit of time to develop, obviously. Especially for, like we talked about, the system that develops or that requires a whole bunch of teaching for the offensive line to properly understand it. And don't forget, they lost Bakhtiari, so Wagner might take a year to fit into this new system. And although their schedule has a sweet, sweet playoff run with the Lions and Panthers, followed up by a middling Titans defense, they still play some of the league's best teams throughout the schedule, being the Bucks, the Saints, the Colts, the Eagles, the 49ers, essentially rendering him useless in a 30-year season. Or did it render him useless? So I had to sit back and I actually had to look at it. When I dove into last season and compare his great games with his bad ones, because God, he's more two-faced than a psycho girl that still calls you once a month at two o'clock in the morning and then cusses you out through a text message because you didn't answer. Uh, I mean, you know, it happens. It really does. Pretty brutal. But either way, getting on with it. The majority of his bad games came against teams that were actually subpar at best when it came to stopping the run. The Bears, the Lions, the Chargers, the Giants all ranked 20th or worst versus the run. And he put up single-digit fantasy points up against each one of those. The only great team that he put up single-digit fantasy points against was the 49ers. But then I went and looked at it, and he only had two games up against top 10 run defenses. The other one was versus the Eagles, in which he put up his worst game with double-digit fantasy points. So with all my back and forth, what I'm trying to say is that Aaron Jones was completely unpredictable even while playing a schedule that running backs fantasize about. You can blame two of his games on fumbles, sure, and that's why he get more carries, right? Maybe. But that doesn't really affect me. That doesn't make it any better. He's got a schedule this year that is infinitely tougher. And although I love running backs like I talked about in their contract years that have his type of upside, the floor for him is way, way too low. I can't take him in the first three rounds of drafts. Maybe if it's a late third, I would consider it, but still, he cannot be taken for me that early, and he's going way too high now. You're not going to feel good about running him out there in a minimum of five different games this season. And he was a product of his efficiency while facing bad defenses. He only saw three games with over 20 carries. That's crazy. You can't even argue that he's going to get the volume. Even if you don't think that A.J. Dillon will end up seeing snaps, you still can't argue volume. That's crazy to me. That's crazy. Listen, when I first looked at it, right, even now, even now, we'll say even now, my gut is telling me to take him. My gut wants me to take Aaron Jones. It really does. But the stats are right in front of me, helping me to fight that urge. That urge, right? That same urge. Oof. There's, it says, like, just go have one more drink, right? One more drink. There's going to be a hot girl that walks through the door any minute, and you're going to be happy you grab that one more drink. I know it. I know it. 
And then as you go to order that drink, the bartender tells me that its last call was 20 minutes ago and I have to get the fuck out. <laughs> the stats are the bartender telling me to go home. Right? I might think I know what's best for me, but I don't even know what's happening up until you take it and you break it down. Now, I will tell you that there are two scenarios where I really do want Aaron Jones, but the draft is not one of them. The first scenario is right after week five, right? Jones just faced the Saints and the Bucks. A team that drafted him is most likely going to be hurting real bad at this point because they just saw Jones up against the Vikings, who he does well against traditionally, but still a coin flip. And just based off of last year, there's a good chance that he shits the bed versus the Lions or the Falcons. The owner of Jones is most likely going to be 2-3, and 1-4. and four. Probably going to have a losing record if he took Jones in, what, the second round? If he looks at Jones' upcoming schedule, he's going to see the 49ers, he's going to see the Vikings, he's going to see the Colts just over the next few weeks. Knowing that he's not going to make the playoffs with Jones on his roster because of the traditional what's already happened in the first five weeks of the season, he's going to be desperate to flip him. But the following game is up against the Texans, so he's going to think that Jones might have some more value. That's when you attack. That's when you go get Jones. Listen, I'm not saying I'm not saying that you should go, go trade off one of your top assets for Jones, but if he's willing to part with a guy and you are super, super deep at running back, and you have a winning record, let's throw that in there too. You have to have a winning record as well. This could work. You get the Jags, the Bears, the Lions, and the Panthers for the winning stretch for the playoffs. And if he's your flex running back, you can be sitting real pretty if you pull that trade off right. Right? Get him for a way, way lower end cost value. Maybe trying to do a two for one trade. Something along those lines. Just see what you can pull off if in week five the Jones owner is freaking out. That's one of the situations, one of the scenarios. The second scenario is in Dynasty. I'm buying them up cheap right around the same time. I have an alert, a reminder in my phone go trade for Aaron Jones. Hopefully, I'll still support that in week five, but I'm, I'm really, really high on Aaron Jones and Dynasty. And this is why. The coaches, they don't really like him. He didn't fit well in McCarthy's system. And looking at the next-gen stats in games where he didn't do well, it appears he was just running the system I spoke of earlier. Right? He wasn't running the system properly. He's going to command a pretty penny in free agency. So I don't see, I don't see Green Bay re-signing him unless he melts faces off and dominates in the first <laughs> or in the, the 2020 season, let's say. I don't see him returning in 2021. And he's going to have to go to a good team that has a little bit of salary cap. And the first one that comes to mind is the Arizona Cardinals. Who would not love to see him in the open field because of the air raid offense with green grass in front of him? He's a perfect fit for a player with his style. Another one I was looking at was Miami, even Atlanta, even New England. God help him not to fumble if he goes to New England, but New England could be a location. Even Kansas City could be an option if they feel like they need a lead back because CEH will never be a lead back. (laughs) I love shitting on CEH. Either way, there are numerous locations that I could see him fall to that would be a great landing spot with very few locations that I really wouldn't like, especially with his price tag. Wherever he goes, he's going to demand a pretty penny. 
He's going to want some money, so they're going to have to use him. I don't see him signing as a backup anywhere. So I think a downgrade is almost out of the question. I really do. And you have to keep in mind, he's getting older, and I'm not one to buy up on older running backs. I was trying to sell Todd Gurley before the knee injuries even came up. I'm one of those guys that wants to sell a running back when he hits 23 years old, 24 years old, and he's at his peak value. But Aaron Jones, Aaron Jones is intriguing. He might be 26 by this time next year, but he's only touched the ball 534 times. 534. That's almost 400 times less than Christian McCaffrey in the same exact time span. I'm not trying to go back too far, but we're seeing a very similar player explode right around the same age. And he's almost identical to Aaron Jones' situation. The only thing, the only difference was he didn't change teams. They just got in a a new coaching staff, and that was Tiki Barber. Tiki Barber exploded onto the scene when he was 26. I could see the same thing happening with Aaron Jones. There's no wear and tear. There's no tread on those tires, baby. Typically, I'm not somebody that gets behind a running back at the age of 26 years old. But if he can sign a three, four, five-year contract that's not outrageously expensive to the point where a team will have to end up cutting him, I think he could remain as a top-end option until he's 31 years old. I think it's very possible. Now, I don't know if you can handle me going into a different player at this point because I've literally spent... What, an hour recording already? No, I'm just kidding. But I've already spent a significant amount of time on these guys. So I'm going to give you a second before I switch gears. And while you guys take this second, I think you should go on Patreon and subscribe. Yeah. Users actually got this previous section that I just read off, typed up. And out in Patreon land, way prior to me recording this episode, because I wanted to make sure that they knew what was taking so long for me to come out with this episode. Right? So I typed it up because I wanted to share it with them because I was way too excited. And I shared it on patreon.com slash fantasy intervention. Yeah, you guys could have gotten it before everybody else did. Not that you needed it, but it would have been pretty cool. Yeah. It's just my show sheet notes. But it's patreon.com slash fantasy intervention. Go join us. It's two bucks a month. That's it. 50 cents a week. You guys can afford that, right? Right? And even if you can't afford it. You can always go on and help us out in different ways, like writing reviews, like giving us five stars. It would literally take you two seconds. I've literally spent more time, more time talking about it than it would have taken you to go click five stars on your Apple app or on your Google Play. So go do that real quick. While you do that, I'm going to dive into weighted opportunities, baby, since that's kind of where I started with because Aaron Jones dominated them. I mean, he ranks seventh, and if you're curious what weighted opportunities are, it's essentially, it values targets and red zone carriers, carries, excuse me, higher than just normal touches, normal rushing touches. It even weighs carries inside the five-yard line higher than it does inside the 20-yard line. I mean, per PFF, uh, a target is actually worth 2.83 times as much as a carry in PPR leagues. It's still 1.43, I believe, more than it is in standard leagues as well. So although Leonard Fournette, for example, was fourth in red zone carries, he was second in weighted opportunities because of the passing work that he received. Christian McCaffrey had an insane amount of weighted opportunities, 
because he was first in targets and second in red zone touches. The only guy that saw more red zone touches was Ezekiel Elliott. But he dropped down to number four in weighted opportunity because of his tremendous lack of passing down work. So I wanted to bring up a few guys. And I'm going to start out with Devonta Freeman. And although they didn't use him in the red zone, only two touches per game, he was 14th in weighted opportunity. That was primarily because he was 10th in the league in targets. Now, he still was the featured guy. He was getting a 67.4 opportunity share. Throughout last year, (laughs) even with that opportunity share, he was wildly inefficient. He averaged only 3.6 yards per carry and 4.4 yards per target. Both of those are absolutely horrendous. Listen, I would have taken whatever contract the Seahawks offered me if I was Devontae Freeman. Just so that my final year statistics weren't as brutal as what they were. But he still got work. He still got work. His run blocking didn't really help whatsoever. But honestly, we should see a significant improvement this year if they can stay healthy. Because they also added on Matt Hennessy in the draft and McCray. Now, with an improved offensive line, no Devontae Freeman, we can insert Todd Gurley. And I know there's a lot, a lot of the variables relying on health right now. Todd Gurley's knees, the offensive line like Listrom being able to stay healthy and active, right? A rookie center. But come on. Even while getting a larger part of his carries at the goal line for Todd Gurley, and of course on third and short, he still managed to tally up more yards per carry than Freeman did. This offense should be humming. Humming a little better this year. And Matt Ryan and this offense, they're obviously going to feature the running back in the passing game far more, far more than what Gurley saw with the Rams this past year. It was brutal. On top of that, who's going to take work away from Gurley? Ito Smith? (laughs) Come on now. Come on. I think that Todd Gurley is an excellent, excellent by-low candidate for a team that's looking to make a championship run. Or people, if you're in a redraft league, that can find him in, what, the fifth or sixth round? That's crazy. Yeah, grab him up. He's going to be worth it. Now, there's another guy, along with Devontae Freeman, who's leaving a bunch of weighted opportunities on the table. It's Melvin Gordon. Melvin Gordon, man. I'll never forget his third game back. They were trying to get him going, right? Give him a bunch of carries at the goal line. Gave him four of them at the goal line. And he didn't get a single carry in. It was brutal. It was brutal. It's crazy. Listen, he's leaving behind an insane amount of weighted, weighted targets. An insane amount. The majority of those are coming from the red zone. Yeah, red zone touches. But he was still top 20 in targets while only playing 12 games. The question is, who's going to take the weighted opportunity from Melvin Gordon? And I'm putting my money, I'm putting all my money on Joshua Kelly. Don't forget, he went to college right down the road. Anthony Lynn probably heard his name being chanted from the stadium day after day after day. It's ingrained in his head. Yeah. Heard about it constantly. Listen, I think that Joshua Kelly is taking a significant snap share in his rookie year. He's very similar when it comes to build and metrics to Melvin Gordon. Very similar. And from from what I've heard, the word on the street show is that he has amazing character. If you notice the Chargers, 
and their front office and their coaching staff, they value character through the roof. They don't want drama. They don't want issues. And it's become evident. Melvin Gordon got a little mouthy. See you later. Philip Rivers started speaking up. Right? Putting the, the franchise in the not so positive light. Peace, Bill Rivers. Even back with Eric Weddle. Then they paid guys. They paid guys like Austin Eckler. They paid guys like Keenan Allen. They stayed away from guys like Cam Newton. Just saying. Just saying. They should give this kid an opportunity. And no, I'm not afraid of Justin Jackson. Not only can he not stay healthy, but he's a seventh round pick. He had his chance last year. He had his chance before Melvin Gordon came back. He couldn't get more than nine touches in a game. He's there to be insurance for Eckler. He's the poor man's Eckler. He has the same build and play style. He's just not as talented. I think that Joshua Kelly needs to come off the draft boards a lot sooner than what he's doing. He could very, very easily see the same workload that Melvin Gordon saw and potentially be way more productive at the goal line, to be honest with you. His efficiency might be higher than Melvin Gordon's because Melvin Gordon's efficiency was not there. It wasn't there. Now, I've got one more guy. I'm going to finish it up with a guy that's falling down draft boards and he really shouldn't be. And I believe I've covered him before, but I'm going to revisit it because I feel this strongly about it. And it's Devin Singletary. He missed four games, four games with a hamstring injury that occurred in week two. He still wasn't right when he came back, came back a little bit too early. But you would have never guessed it if you saw him on the field post-Miami. Returning from the injury, five out of his last eight games, he had seven or more evaded tackles. In that period of time, he finished out as the running back 21 while nabbing only two touchdowns. That's it. He only had two touchdowns in that time frame. Could you imagine if he can start producing touchdowns? It's a Leonard Fournette corollary. The only difference is, is he didn't get the opportunities that Leonard Fournette got. He didn't. But I believe that that's going to change this year. Listen, this past year, he saw less than two touches per game in the red zone. Meanwhile, in the receiving game, he ranks 33rd out of all the running backs and targets. He did everything. He became the 21st overall running back by using his ability to get away from defenders, having the third largest big run rate and the third best juke rate. With a solid offensive line and a quarterback that freezes defenders, he will repeat this. He will repeat being the number five running back in the league at true run rate with 4.9 yards per carry. Now, people are sitting there arguing Zach Moss. Why would the Bills scoff at this efficiency? Man, he was overly efficient. We should probably bring another running back in. Come on. Come on, guys. Come on. You're better than that. You're better than that. Zach Moss is a polar opposite of Singletary. Hell, he was drafted later than Singletary was drafted. They're going to bring in Zach Moss and give this guy that was drafted later all of Singletary's work? Come on, guys. Listen, Singletary does not have breakaway speed. And that's something that I look at tremendously, tremendously at the running back position. That's why I don't like CEH is because his inability to get into the end zone because he's not able to beat defenders to the corner and he's not able to break away 
from defensive backs. So I understand that. And if Singletary did have that breakaway speed, he would have had way more than four touchdowns in the year. That would make him a top 10 back, but I'm not saying he's a top 10 back. I'm not. I'm telling you guys that he's falling too far down draft boards and people aren't valuing him properly because they're afraid of Zach Moss. For no reason. Zach Moss is a plotter. Right? He might get some goal line work, but Devin Singletary didn't get it last year. Why is it going to change? It could only get better. What I'm looking at is Devin Singletary's ability to create yards on an improving offense that's honestly impressive. Right? Using Josh Allen's ability to freeze middle linebackers. Stefan Diggs coming in and opening the offense up a little bit, pulling safeties out of the box. Yeah, this could be an impressive, impressive 2020 season from Devin Singletary. I see his workload increasing, not decreasing. And if he can finish out the way that he did in 2019 without having significant weighted opportunities, I can't wait for 2020. Because even if he can get a few more opportunities than what he did this past year, we could see an explosion out of this guy. An explosion. I cannot wait for Devin Singletary to accrue more weighted opportunities in 2020. And that's how I'm going out, baby. That's how I'm going out. Listen, if you guys want to listen to us on any other platform, we're available on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and CastBox. Get excited. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fantasy intervention. And a huge shout out to Fantasy Football Discussion. Keep those questions coming, guys. Listen, thank you guys for listening, and thank you for letting me intervene with your fantasy football life. Go sign up for Patreon. Hey, my mom told my niggas is dope. Switch up a stove, pick up a stove. They feeling away, they know I'm the goat. That's how you bang a podcast.